Please open your Bibles. We'll be reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, if you've been here over the last few weeks, uh, you've been hearing Peter give us instruction about how we live particularly how we live in relationships, uh, both with the state as citizens, how we live in relationships with employers and employees, but also how we live with spouses. Um, Peter, as, as Melanie read, finally, all of you, he's not concluding his letter. He's just finishing this section where he's speaking about how we live in this world. Right? Remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, He says, to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, among the non-believers, that they may see your good deeds, and though they speak evil of you, that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, your lives matter. How you live, I mean, how you live with the state, how you live with one another, it matters in terms of uh, those who would speak evil of us would see our good deeds and honor God. Well, today he's finishing this section by just taking a step back and saying, finally, all of you. In other words, he's speaking to the church now. And he's going to give us these two instructions in our passage. So if you had two buckets to put the sermon in, one bucket is how we are to live with each other. What's it to look like? I mean, if a non-Christian were here to say, what, what does it mean to be in the church? What does it mean, what does it look like to be the church? That's the one. And then the other one is, how do we live in this world? I, I mean, how do we live in a world uh, that is hostile, or can be often hostile to the faith that you hold? So those are the two buckets, how we live with each other and how we live in this world. Look with me back at verse 8, because he gives these these five adjectives, these five commands about how we're to live. Now remember where we've been in this book. Peter's already told you you're different. He said you've been born again to a living hope. He said you have an imperishable inheritance. He says that you are living stones. He says that you've been chosen of God. So you're a different people. You have a different identity now. You've been drawn out of the world into his kingdom, into his new community of faith. But you've also been given new names. Names like you're chosen of God, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're people belonging to God. <clears throat> and so this, is, this new community of faith is to have a different look to it. It's not to be like other communities in this world. We're to be different because God's made us different. And some of these differences are here. Look at how he describes us. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind. These aren't independent of one another. It's like a composite. It's like a picture. It's a mosaic as to what we should look like. Let's look at each one of them because I think it bears. It's it's good to speak speak of them individually because it helps us to bear down on are we walking in this way? 
So this unity in mind, that word just means the same mind, right? It, it, it kind of means a harmony. We know back in verse 2, uh, you've been chosen by God, you've been sanctified by the Spirit, you have been uh, cleansed by the blood of Christ. So the unity that we share is not a unity that those in the world will share. I mean, a lot of people gather themselves together around shared experiences. They gather themselves together around a common cultural tastes. They gather themselves around educational philosophy. They gather themselves around political affiliations. They gather themselves around different opinions that they may have. But it's different with the church, that, that we gather ourselves around this gospel, this idea that God just in unfathomable mercy, would send his son to be a Messiah to save and to reconcile us to God and to each other. So the church, this unity of mind, is mean, means that the gospel or the church has a gospel cohesion where our gospel unity trumps all worldly unity. All worldly points of unity are trumped. Now, it doesn't mean that we're the same. It doesn't mean that we're, we're, you know, we struggle with a uniformity. It, it's, a, it's a unity. So it's like a symphony, if you will. You have all these different instruments, and yet when they're all tuned to the same key, there's a beautiful, harmonious sound that comes out of it. So we, we can have differences of opinion about how we serve God, but our hopes and our desires and our goals, wanting his glory, wanting his honor, I mean, that's all the same. And so together with this having unity of mind, Paul says it this way in the book of Philippians, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So do you feel that we're that way here? Do we have unity of mind around the gospel? I mean, we're, we, we know that we're different, that's clear, but do we, do we center on this? Do you feel like we're strong as a church? It, the church really does need to self-assess. Do you participate in that? Do you make more of the gospel than you make of the differences? I was thinking about this in respect. I was speaking with a person who had been going to AA, and AA stresses that. These AA meetings are very different one from the other, and, and yet even in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, they'll tell you, don't focus on what's different about everybody, but focus on what's shared. Are we focusing on the gospel in that way? Okay, the second thing we see here, um, sympathy. Sympathy is a, it, it's a feeling with. It's entering into another person's feelings. It, it's, it's particularly in suffering. Uh, we want to be careful not to just jump into their world of suffering and say, hey, I know how you feel. We may not know how they feel. That, those sometimes can be very harsh words. But this idea of, of entering in, of suffering or rejoicing with. Let me try to give, give you something that might be analogous to this. So if you've ever worked with wood, uh, and you've swung a hammer, and you've missed the hammer, and you've hit your thumb. Now, when you bring a, when you bring a hammer down to drive a nail you're not really being soft with it. You're swinging it. It comes off the head of the nail, or perhaps you just miss the whole thing, and you hit your thumb. And when you hit your thumb, it, you know, you've only hit your thumb. You didn't hit this part of your leg. But, but, but the pain goes into the hand, 
it goes up the arm, it kind of disorients you in your mind. You begin to see things that aren't there. And then it kind of goes down if you've really taken a swing at the nail. But, but really, in a way, the body suffers with the thumb because the pain doesn't remain there. Even though the thumb is, is the only thing that's been hit, your toe is hurting at that point. And, and I, I know I'm speaking of experience here more than once, but, but the idea of suffering with, are we sympathetic with one another? I mean, it says in Hebrews 4 that Jesus, as our high priest, was sympathetic with us in our weakness. I think about the Hebrew Christians in chapter 10. It says, they sympathized with those in prison, and they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. They weren't in prison with the Christians, but they suffered with them to the point that they were losing their own property because of their association. Is this something that you've experienced here? Have you been sympathetic? And not just in sorrow. Remember, Paul writes in Romans to rejoice with those who rejoice and sympathize or weep with those who weep. Do you have relationships here where sympathy, where people have moved towards you, feeling with you in your pain or your joy? You know, the, the fear is that we live these individualistic, isolated worlds and nobody really knows. I, I always say we're like these icebergs. All of us are. There's always more underneath the surface going on in our lives. And, and a lot of us are big icebergs because we're really struggling with a lot of things. But we won't say anything. And so we, we prevent people from suffering with us, feeling with us. Or even in rejoicing, we're hesitant to say, well, I, I can't really say how things are going because they're in such dire straits right now that if I just tell them how great things are going, it's just going to sink them further. But, you know, we do ourselves in the church a disservice. God intends for the church to be sympathetic, that we're to enter into each other's life. If you live right now and you feel like you are an iceberg and so much of your life is underneath the surface and it's torturing you, you've you got to say something. You know, we, 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 we tend to, even the longest standing Christians tend to look at one another and think because you look good, you must be good. And because you look like you have it all together, then, then you must have it all together. And that isn't the case. Look at the third one with me. Brotherly love. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, brotherly love here. It's throughout the scriptures. You see it in chapter 1, verse 22, to love one another <clears throat> earnestly. But notice the language here. The church <clears throat> excuse me, is to have this familial love. It's a brotherly love. We worship a heavenly father. So in the church, there is this idea of brothers and sisters. Now, it's an interesting thing with the family, because most of us have a family, and most of us, if we have extended family, there have been troubles and trials and harsh things have been said. But you don't leave family. You know, even if someone says something harsh, you just don't leave. It's my brother. It's my sister. Yeah, I know they said that. Yeah, it was hurtful. But they're family. And you stick together. I, I think that's the idea here, that the church is to have a brotherly, a sisterly love. The, the, the kind of the assumption is we need each other. E even though, you know, one author said churches are like laboratories of love because we're going to have conflict among brothers and sisters. But we don't leave at that point. We stick it out. We stick it out for the greater cause of God's glory. 
And, and we need each other. You know, that, that's implied in this idea of brotherly love. That, that we need one another. And, and, and sadly, I know many Christians who have been in the faith a long time who want to try to do Christianity on their own. Isolating themselves or being very minimally involved. And I'll tell you, you can't do it. You can't do it. All the one another's in scriptures imply there has to be this brotherly love. Listen to the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer words it. You know, I quote him a lot whenever I speak about the church because he wrote a great book on it, Life Together. Uh, of course, he was a Lutheran pastor. He lived in Germany in the mid-20th century. He ultimately was executed right before the Allies liberated Germany. He lived in an underground church, if you will, gathering together even though the government was opposed to him and pursued him. But here's what he wrote. <clears throat> Sorry, it's pollen season. Uh, he didn't write that. Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, God has willed that we should seek and find God's living word in the testimony of other Christians, in the mouths of other human beings. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened because, living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of truth. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. They need them solely for the sake of Jesus Christ. The Christ in their hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. Their own hearts are uncertain. Those of their brothers and sisters are sure. But we need one another. Now John Stott, fast forward, about 60 years, writes this. He says, we should certainly welcome, now this is in the context of kind of we're becoming a, a digitalized people. And he's saying this in respect to, again, the isolationism that we succumb to in this culture. He says this, he says, in such a dehumanized society, speaking about how we're becoming so digitally minded, the fellowship of the local church will become increasingly important, whose members meet one another and talk and listen to one another in person rather than on a screen. In this human context of mutual love, the speaking and hearing of the word of God is also likely to become more necessary for the preservation of our humanness. I mean, our humanness is at stake here. So, so you see this brotherly love. Do you have this kind of love for one another? I mean, do, do you, not every single person in here, there's too many to have this kind of connectedness, but do you, are you moving towards, or are there two or three people that, that you're willing to sacrifice for, that you have spoken the word of God to, that you look for them to speak God's word to you, to encourage you? Who are they? Thank God for them. And if you don't have any, we, we need to find some. Because the church doesn't operate. It, it, just coming here on Sunday morning is inadequate to develop you and to prepare you to see God. Okay, look at the next word, tender heart. Uh, tender heartedness. Now, this isn't really a conduct per se. It's more of an inner disposition of the heart. Uh, the, in Greek, it's literally, there's generosity in the bowels. In other words, it's not a superficial feeling, it's inside. And you're disposed like a mother to a child. There's a softness that we have to one another. There's a readiness to forgive. 
You know, the, the person that's not tender-hearted is the one languishing over past hurts and constantly replaying them in her mind and, 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 get, and going after and, and struggling to, to bring forgiveness to a situation, kind of just playing the hurt over and over. Th- this tender-heartedness is a person ready to be reconciled, wanting the good in the other. Listen to how Paul words it in Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the tenderness that we are to have with one another is to be born out of the tenderness that we have felt from God. Do you feel tender-hearted to people? I mean, are you quick to forgive them? Are you disposed to their good? Do you want to be generous to people in giving them the benefit of the doubt? Look at the last one with me, a humble mind, this humility of mind. You know, when we speak about humility in a, in a Greco-Roman culture was to be avoided because it was seen as a weakness, but it's a mark of the Christian faith. And when I speak about humility, I'm not talking about having a poor self-esteem or a low self-image. Having a humility is, is comparing yourself not to one another, but to God. And you compare yourself to God, and you realize how massively dependent you are, how, how absolutely contingent as human beings we are on him for life and breath and all things. And this kind of humility is such that, that we defer to others, that we don't demand rights, that we lower ourselves, that we, we humble ourselves, like Jesus girding himself about with a towel, washing the feet of his disciples. There's a, a profoundness to this humility. You know, John Stott, again, a theologian of the, of the 24, well, died probably 10, 15 years ago. He said what humility is, is just having a proper understanding of yourself in relationship to God. Again, it's not thinking less of yourself as, Tim Keller says it's thinking about yourself less. It's just not thinking about yourself a lot. That's a humility. Paul says it this way. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he says, have this mind that is in Christ, this humble mind. So do you find yourself being willing to serve? Do you find yourself thinking of yourself less then thinking of others? I mean, are, are, you, are you willing uh, to allow others to receive credit? Are, are you willing to take a back seat, maybe enter a conversation and not say anything? Or ask the questions so that they get to speak? Is this humility part of your life? Do you see it evidenced in your brothers and sisters? See, when you look at the church from verse 8, Peter's saying this is how we live with each other. We live with each other with tenderness and, and mercy and sympathy and, and fighting for unity. And this is what we want to do. We want to fight for this kind of church. It's not going to come because we gather together. It's going to come because we are striving, that, that we're longing to have affections for one another. You know, German theologian Schopenhauer uh, likened the human race to a bunch of porcupines. He did this a while back. And he said, the human race is like a bunch of porcupines. And porcupines, and, and, and what they do is, it, in a winter's night, when the chill gets strong, they begin to huddle together. 
But as the human race begins to huddle together, being porcupines, they naturally prick and irritate one another. And, and they have trouble huddling together so that, so that through the night they begin wandering away because of the harm that is coming from one another. And he says they wander away into the night, freezing to death in their loneliness. That's the world. That's not the church. The church is to have deep affections. Do you realize what Peter's doing here? All of those are commands that you're to do. He's commanding you to have affections for people. He's commanding you to be sympathetic. He's commanding you to love. He's commanding you. Now you may say, oh, I, I can't do that. I mean, I can't act in a way that's not in accordance with my feelings. That if I, I'll be hypocritical. I'd be inconsistent. I'd be inauthentic. Well, is that true? I mean, Jesus does say, love your enemies. Jesus himself is commanding you. You know, doesn't Augustine, the great church father of the 4th century, doesn't he say, command what you will, and then give what you command? So yes, Father, command. God can command. He can command because he can give you the emotions you need. When Lazarus was dead as a post in the grave, and Jesus says, come forth, he came out. I mean, he didn't have any feelings, but he got him real fast, and he came right out. God can give those feelings. If you have trouble loving people, if you have trouble being sympathetic, move in response to that. The unique thing about the church, when I was an accountant, I had relationships with many people. There was no sympathy necessarily. There was no brotherly love. There was no tenderheartedness. They were a client. I was a CPA. I was doing their taxes. They were coming to... It was a relationship. That's the way the world lives. It's a quid pro quo. It's a do this, get that. The church is different. We're to have deep affections for one another. We want to strive for that, pray for that, seek that, ask God for that, and begin to walk in it. We just begin to walk in it, saying, Father, I'm walking in obedience to your command. I trust that you will give what you command. That's why small groups are so important and significant to this church. It's hard to have these things operating at a deep level when we're not meeting together in smaller groups. If you're not in a care group or a small group, I encourage you to consider that. I mean, in, in that environment, like we had dinners around, so I think we had 13 or 14 different homes hosting parties. We had a lovely time at our house. About eight people came. We had a great meal, sat around. We tried to play some games. None of the games worked because they're so old and broken. All the batteries had corroded. And we just talked. I know it was crazy. It's like, how long have we not played this game? But, uh, but, but what we did was we just sat around and talked. It was a, just a sweet, sweet time of, of creating an environment in which these things can take place. So let me encourage you toward that. But let me also encourage, we want to be a church not just with affections, we want to be a church that keeps the gospel central. Listen, we are rugged individualists. We feel we have rights, we have desires, and we want them generally met. And every institution out there is going to seek to meet your needs so that you'll keep coming back. The church is not that way. We are to take our individualism and not lose it, but submit it to the greater goal of making the gospel central in our life. You know, Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, I preached to you what was of first importance. And then he speaks about the gospel. The gospels of, that is, this idea that God would give to us a son who alone could reconcile to himself and to each other, that he would take upon himself our sins, that he would, be, he would be crushed by God's justice that we should have borne, he bore in our stead. 
And then God raised him to glory. And so will he raise us. This is the beauty of the gospel. Is that central to us? We need to keep it central because there will always be things that pop up that seem to distract. We want to keep it central. So this is the kind of church we want to be. Now, saying this, I want to publicly declare to you that the church has often failed in this. We have not been sympathetic. We have not been loving. We have not often walked with the tenderness of heart and humility of mind. I'm speaking generally about the church. We have failed, but also this church has. I could give you names. We have not served people well in every situation. It grieves my heart to say that. God doesn't do his work instantaneously in a church. He does it incrementally. And in the incremental growth that we experience as Christians, we still sometimes hurt each other. And I do grieve. I'm deeply saddened over that. I am encouraged that God is going to complete the work. And that even through the struggle and the trial that we have, that we, even as our leadership team here, has not served everybody perfectly well. That that by God's grace, we're going to move forward and continue to move forward. And that's just the nature of the church. That's why I referenced that author who said the churches are laboratories of love. It's just like your own human family. You say the wrong things, you do the wrong things, you hurt one another. There's conflict because we're sinners. But by forgiving and by moving forward in harmony, seeking to walk for his glory, we display the gospel to each other. This powerful gospel. And think about this for us coming together. If we preach a gospel that we say has the power to reconcile the sinner to God, then the gospel should have the power to reconcile the saint to the saint. It's the same power that saves us. And if you're not a Christian here, uh, I'm glad that you're here. I, uh, I think you would agree with me that if you could join a society of people that were united, sympathetic, were loving one another, exercised tenderness of heart and humility of mind, that would be a sweet society to join, wouldn't it? But, but you can't join the society apart from repentance and faith. That you need to repent of your sins. You need to come to faith in Christ. And, and, and then you're drawn into the community. Then we're all, we're all together. Sinners reconciled to God through faith in Christ. But I would ask you, even if you're not ready to do that, just come stay with us. Watch us. See if we walk these things out. I would love for you just to remain with us and hear the gospel week after week. Okay, so that's how we live with one another. Okay, let's just shift for just a moment to verse 9. And this is how we live with one another in the world, though. Now, this also applies to people in the church, but because the whole tenor of the letter of Peter is moving towards suffering from hostility, I'm going to go in that direction. We're going to see that all the way through chapter 4, verse 19. So in verse 9, notice what it is. He shifts here. And he gives instruction. How do you handle the hostility that is in the world? Now, when I speak about the hostility of the church from the world, remember, by and large, through the history of the church, martyrdom has not been the main way the church has suffered hostility. But it's usually through socially ostracizing or mockery or character defamation or jeering or 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 you know, criticizing you or re- insulting you or talking behind your back. That's generally how people have suffered. Now, I don't want to make light of that, particularly if you were raised in a culture that was based on honor and shame. To be cut off from a community like that would be a very difficult thing. 
But notice what Peter's instructions are. Peter's instructions are this. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. He says, don't do it. He says, do not give back to them what they have given to you. Now, I think you'll admit with me that this is standard operating behavior. I mean, payback is in our blood. Retaliation and revenge, it's right there. I mean, all of us, even if you're a Christian. So, let's just, let me just show a piece of my iceberg for you. <clears throat> I'm going to the gym, and I'm going to pull in. There's two parking places right next to the door of the gym. This is, it gets classic as it goes along. So I'll just throw myself on the altar here for a minute. But I'm about to pull into the one spot closest to the door, right? I have my blinker and I'm ready. Well, some sweet woman <laughs> comes on the phone. I think she was driving with her foot because she was waving. She was talking on the phone. Her hand was going. She was able to turn the car. So she turns and pulls right into the parking place right in front of me. And so I'm just sitting there waiting. My blinker's on. I'm being, trying to be. Pulls right in in front of me. And I'm, I'm looking at her and I'm going, Wow. I'm, I exist, I'm here, she's just talking away on the phone. And so, for a moment, this indignation is welling up, this desire for revenge. You can't imagine what was going through my mind at that point. And as I backed up to take the spot next to her, as I'm wallowing in self-justification, I realize that's what's inside you. I mean, you're, you're close to getting angry you're going to the gym to exercise and you got to walk two extra steps and that's a problem do you see the irony i'm going to the gym to sweat and i don't want to walk though but two steps i don't want to do four i mean i was sitting there thinking oh this is why i need the god the retaliatory spirit within human nature is profound i, I it just profound we want to get even and yet peter's saying something to us so unnatural so counterintuitive. No, 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 don't repay evil. Bless them. Bless them. Now that word in bless, that word bless is eulogy. It's to speak good words. That's what it would mean in a Greco world, but not in our world. In the Bible world, to bless, it's not white-knuckled obedience like I exercise. I didn't say anything to the woman. I didn't ram her car. I didn't key it. I didn't do anything like that. None of those things are going through my mind, by the way. But, but there can be a white-knuckled silence that is not honoring to this text because your heart's seething with anger and bitterness. That's not what he's talking about. And he's also not talking about our southern way. Ah, oh, bless him, Lord. Bless him, Lord. That's not it either. I know I've heard that before. Bless him, Lord. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. What I'm talking about is you desire God's favor for them that you are you're praying and you're asking God to do a work to lead them to repentance, to lead them to hope, to lead them to joy. What Peter's saying is incredible, that you're asking God to move mightily, but this is only what Jesus had told him before. Jesus had told Peter in Luke 6, but I say to you who hear, that's a good, clear, clarifying note there, to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Do you see, he's calling us to do this. And then Peter gives us two reasons. Look with me in, in the rest of 9. 
The first reason, he says, is so that you may obtain a blessing. That you may obtain a blessing. Now, he doesn't tell us what this blessing is. He doesn't explain it to us. At least in that verse, I think he does. If you look at verses 10, 11, and 12, that is um, a, a quotation right out of Psalm 34. He pulls from David's Psalm 34 and puts it right in here. And I think he's using that to explain the passage. And, and so what I see is that when he says to obtain a blessing, it's really speaking about verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, that's a blessed life. And he's saying if you want to obtain that, that long life, that good life, that you are not to repay evil for evil. Because you see in the rest of verse 10, he says, keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from deceit, uh, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. In other words, I think he's saying this, that if you want to see a good life, it is in this world, but I think, it's, I think he's pointing to the next fundamentally. I think what he's saying is this, the good life that you have coming through God, that good life, should cause you to be able to recognize now, I can bless even in the face of evil. I don't need to repay. I don't need to revile back. I, what I have coming is so glorious and so rich and so beautiful and it's so good that I can actually do good right now even to those who have not done good to me. In other words, it's your hope in a future grace that helps you to live this way now, to get that blessing. That, that we're, not, we're not being good to people who are evil to get the blessing. It's we have the blessing, and because we have it, we've pondered it, we cherish it, oh, we can be good now. It, 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 it gives us a freedom to not have to return evil for evil. I think that's the first reason that he's giving, or the first motivation. But look at the next one in verse 12. He says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer. The face is the Lord. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What he's saying here, a second reason that you can bless those who do evil is that God is watching you. I mean, if God exists, he exists, he's created us, he knows us, he's looking at us. His eyes are on the righteous. He watches your suffering. He knows when you're weeping over the injustice that you've borne. I mean, he says in Psalm 56, he stores our tears in a bottle. I mean, to know that he is aware of the plight that I'm in encourages us to do good. But not just do his eyes, are they upon us, but his ears are attentive to us. He hears our prayers that when we come to him pleading for grace or, or asking for help, prayer is God's divine gift to us that we can find need or we can find help and grace in our time of need. Do you appeal to God when you are treated harshly? Is he the first one that you run to, to ask for help, to not respond with evil and harshness? Perhaps it's even in your marriage. You know, we're so quick to return the favor, as opposed to saying, God, help me speak in a way that would be good for them and that would bless them. Appealing to God because he's watching me, he's listening to me, and... His face is against those who are opposing me. This is a threatening word. If you're not a Christian, this is a threatening word. That his face, which nobody can stand before and live, is opposed to those who do evil, who criticize and who insult and who hurt. God's face is opposed to them. In fact, Peter 
uh, doesn't quote the rest of the psalm, the rest of the verse, it's, which is to cut off the memory of them from the earth. In other words, God will make justice. You do not have to repay. You don't have to bring into balance the scales. You don't have to make things even anymore. God will do that just fine. In fact, Paul says it this way, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Don't know exactly what that means, but perhaps leading to some confusion. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, so Christian, if you're a Christian here today, what was the last time that you were criticized, insulted? What did you do? What did you think? Did you respond in light measure? Did you defend your name? Did you argue why you were right? What, what did you do in that moment? Did you send daggers from your heart? And, and if it wasn't against you, because some people will say, well, I can see this applies if I have personal injury. But let's say the name of Christ. You know, we have many cultural and political pundits that make much mockery of the Christian faith. Should we, def- should we respond in like measure to them because they're attacking our Lord? No, not at all. I mean, the Christian, and you think about, particularly when you look on social media, and you see the vitriol that comes from Christians. Do not return evil for evil. Do not revile when reviled. But bless. Bless them. When you see the vitriol, it it doesn't speak well to how he has instructed us to live in this world. And And the way we do this is found in the same letter we've been studying. Do you remember back just last chapter, in chapter 2, 21, when, when he's speaking about how the slaves and the masters are to get along, and he's speaking to the slaves in the context of a difficult master, and he says, to this you were called, in 21. Same thing, by the way, if you look in verse 9. He says, for to this you were called. He says the same thing in 21. For to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither is deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So think about this for a minute. What Peter's saying is that we don't have to repay evil for evil uh, because we have Christ. Christ did not revile. When suffered, he did not threaten. And, and here's two reasons why we don't have to, because he has left us an example. We're to follow his example. That, that this is how he treated those who treated him poorly. We, his followers, are to do the same thing. Now, this is where Protestant liberalism stopped, that Jesus came and he gave us an example and we should follow his example. And that's all they say. I want to say more, because Peter says more. He says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. So, Christian, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, God has done a rebuilding, a remaking work in you. He has caused you to be born again. That you can now live to righteousness. You can say no to the repayment of evil. You can bless those by the power of God through the Spirit of God. So Christian, I want you to understand that because of this regenerating, transforming work of God, 
because Christ bore your sins in his body on a tree, you can bless. Is it hard? Do you have to appeal to, to God? Do you have to entrust yourself to him? Yes. But I'm asking you to exercise holy effort that you don't respond with evil to evil, but you bless, you seek their favor. This is evidence to you. I mean, to be born again isn't simply because I affirm a creed, but the evidence, to be, the evidence of being born again is seen in our lives in not returning evil for evil. So let me encourage that, not just how we treat each other here, but even those outside the world, if you've been treated hostily. And when we do this, the world sees it because it's, it's mind-bending for you not to return. It, it shows the world that you have a future hope in his grace that is solid and sure, and it's changing your life now. So we have two instructions here. First, how do we live with each other? Well, verse 8 is clearly articulating to have unity of mind, and be sympathetic, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, and, and being humble in mind. But how do we live with the world? Well, we live with the world in a way that when hostility or insult or criticism or our name has been defamed, that we do not. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have conversations with people to bring clarity to a situation, but we surely don't move with gossip, with anger, with bitterness. We don't revile back. We don't defame their character, but we bless them. We seek their benefit through prayer and through encouragement. So, uh, so let's just take a minute now, and, and if you're a Christian here, this may bring up a measure of conviction, perhaps, or thankfulness. And I pray that you would either confess your sins silently or even appeal to God for greater grace. If you're not a Christian here, I would just ask you to consider, what do I do with this? I mean, can you really not repay evil? Does it seem even sensical to do that? And that you might consider the gospel, that you might consider what God has done to change us to be like Christ in this way. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute.